Hello, my name is Philip Miraton, and today we are going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, among the many mysteries science faces is this mystery of consciousness. Most of us probably take it for granted. We are conscious, aware, but so what? What is consciousness? How does it arise? But this mystery of consciousness, it seems, grows deeper the more you think about it. For example, how did consciousness arise from Darwinian evolution? How did this thing called awareness and the mind itself arise from inanimate things? Now in neuroscience, this is called the hard problem of consciousness, and in fact, it's a very hard problem that is still unsolved. But at the same time, we are living in an era where it is generally known that there are natural and man-made drugs that alter consciousness, that broaden awareness, and that at times create the very sort of mystical experiences that we commonly associate with religion. Now one difference between science and spirituality is that science explores things objectively by using tests, experiments, data, physical things. Spirituality, on the other hand, is an inner search for truth and is one reason why science and spirituality don't go together very well because science really has no means or little means to explore the truths of spirituality. But some researchers, uh, notably today's guest, Professor Thomas Ray, are using the tools of science to explore not only the architecture of the mind and the origin of mind, but how the organs of the mind may in fact create the spiritual experiences we tend to associate with religion. Now, as I said, Professor Thomas Ray is a professor of biology at the University of Oklahoma. He has a undergraduate degrees in biology and chemistry from Florida State, a master's and doctorate in biology from Harvard. And over the years, he has been through three separate uh, research programs, which we'll probably touch upon. He started off uh, as a tropical biologist studying evolution and the ecology of organisms in rainforests. Then in the 90s, he moved on to uh, the evolution in the digital medium, and, and specifically artificial life. And in the 2000s, though, he, he entered his third major research field, which is the architecture of the human mind, and where he's doing some of, some of his own original research in this area. Welcome to the show, uh, Professor Ray. Good to be here. Well, it's great having you. Now, now you, your, your career, your, your research career has sort of evolved over time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how, how you got into studying the architecture of the mind? Well, it was really the first uh, research program that I was ever interested in as I was um, preparing to enter college. I had uh, read about the diversity of experiences with psychedelic drugs and I knew that there was a story there, a scientific story there. I, I could see that the drugs could be used in research as probes to the structure of the mind because different drugs produce such different experiences. So uh, in, in about 1970, I excitedly went down to the university library to read into neuroscience and was very disappointed with the level of analysis, talking about neurons and action potentials and I was just discouraged. I didn't see any way forward at the time. And so I um, had the opportunity to, to go to the rainforest, and I, I did that for a long time. And around 1980, I had a second powerful idea, which was that uh, the process of evolution by natural selection could operate in the digital medium. And once again, I, I, although I was excited by the idea, I, I didn't see any way forward. And it wasn't until 10 years later that I learned enough to actually implement the artificial life idea, which I did in, in 1990. 
And it was uh, around that time that the Human Genome Project was proposed and, and begun, and I, I could see that the earlier idea that I, powerful idea that I had about the mind was really a post-genome project, and it needed to wait until the completion of the human genome es estimated around 2000. And in fact, I, I waited and, and prepared uh, by continuing to study, and, and once uh, the genome was completed and the technology became available, then I moved forward on the idea that I'd had. Actually, had to wait, wait about 36 years to wow. implement the the idea. Wow! Wow! So, so what was it about the Human Genome Project that that sort of facilitated uh, your research in this area? Was it was it the fact that it, it, the tools that they used to unravel uh, the the human genome, or was it the fact that the, that there was now a, a map of of, uh, of the human genes available? Well, the drugs were apparently interacting with a variety of receptors, and it wouldn't really be possible to understand what they're doing until we had uh, an understanding of all of the receptors, which is something that comes out of the Human Genome Project, because we, we have now a, a mapping of all the genes, and the receptors happen to fall in a gene family, so once you, rec <clears throat> once you recognize the gene family, if you have the complete genome, you can find all the genes. And within a couple of years, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health set up something called the Psychoactive Drug Screening Program, whose goal is to be able to assay drugs against all of the receptors in the human genome. They refer to it as the receptorome. Okay. And it was the uh, Psychoactive Drug Screening Program that approved my project to assay 25 psychedelic drugs against the receptorome. At the time that they did the assay, they were doing just 51 of perhaps 300 uh, receptors, but they seem to have gotten the most relevant, most important ones, uh, because I was able to make quite a lot out of it. Okay, so, so let's let's talk in terms of background here. The the mechanism of let's call them psychedelic drugs, and and what what before you got involved in this, what was the the standard um, sort of interpretation of how psychedelic drugs worked or work? Well, since, <clears throat> since uh, it was around the early 80s uh, that uh, a paradigm for the scientific understanding of psychedelic drugs emerged, that they operate through a single receptor, a serotonin 2A receptor, and that all psychedelic drugs share this common site of action and that they activate that receptor. Now, that understanding emerged after human studies with psychedelics became prohibited. That happened around 1970. And so this new understanding emerged out of basically uh, asking rodents to inform us about consciousness. Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm of the belief that this is a long-standing mistake in the literature, but I should say that I'm pretty much alone in doubting the current paradigm. Okay. So, so I think it's I think it's important just in terms of big picture. Um, you know, most of us believe uh, and understand that that modern pharmacological drugs or the common drugs we buy at the at the pharmacy that they do have a chemical reaction of some kind with with the body. Therefore, therefore. Um, sort of reducing the effects of an illness, a disease, or, or, uh, or addressing a symptom. And what you're saying, if I understand you, is that uh, the, the existing paradigm really applies the same kind of thinking to psychedelic drugs, which is that, like things like mescaline, for example, that this drug or this plant would have uh, affects a certain neuron or certain part of, of the of the brain and brings about what we uh, view as these quote unquote psychedelic experiences is that is that correct it's, it's simply it's the same the same concept of a of a drug but being applied to the mind yes it's true for <clears throat> many classes of drugs but but it, but it's more generally true for drugs that affect the mind that they operate at the receptors through which neurons communicate with each other. 
uh, the way neurons communicate is that they release little chemicals like serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine from the end of an axon, and it uh, attaches to the receptor on the target neuron on the other side of the gap between the neurons. And so the serotonin binding to the receptor or the dopamine binding to the receptor on the target neuron gets a response from the target neuron. So if we put in drugs that interact at those same receptors, then we can alter the way the neurons function in the brain. Okay, so so what, what change in paradigm are, are, have, have you sort of come upon? I understand that, that you're questioning this, the existing paradigm that... That these that these drugs only act at one receptor. What what is different about your approach? That's right. Um, I call the current paradigm the key receptor paradigm. The idea that a psychoactive drug, or even an, an entire class of psycho chemically diverse psychoactive drugs, which are are now known to to bind to dozens of receptors, that this entire class of drugs could act primarily through a single receptor with all members of the class of drugs could be hundreds of drugs or thousands of drugs all acting through a, a single common receptor and that it's safe to ignore their interactions with these dozens of other receptors that they also bind to I think that's false for psychedelic drugs the idea is that serotonin 2a is the key receptor and that's for the most part all we need to understand I, I say that's completely false there isn't any key receptor that these drugs interact with. In fact, they interact with dozens of receptors, and each receptor that they interact with produces perceptible effects, most of, the, most of which would be classified as psychedelic or mind-manifesting. And there isn't any one special receptor that, that is the only one that's psychedelic. What, what, what part of your research... Uh, um led you to to this conclusion? Well, it began uh, way back in the 70s from reading the descriptions of the diversity of psychedelic drugs. Mostly this this work was done by Alexander Shulgin, who uh, spent his career basically inventing new psychedelic drugs and testing them in humans. And it was clear from his work that they were uh, qualitatively diverse. And and it never occurred to me that, that that would happen through a single receptor. From the very beginning, I assumed that that would happen through multiple receptors. So fast forward to the 2000s, my project was approved by the Psychoactive Drug Screening Program. They assayed 25 psychedelic drugs that I chose against 51 sites. I was able to get data from 10 other drugs out of the literature, mostly also assayed by the Psychoactive Drug Screening Program. So now I've got 35 psychoactive drugs assayed against 51 sites in the brain, and they're hitting dozens of receptors. So this supports the original intuition that they could be operating through all these different sites. Then I synthesized the molecular data together with the accumulated body of literature on the effects of these drugs in humans. I chose drugs for, for which literature already exists describing their effects, and patterns fell out. Immediately patterns fell out. It was obvious that different receptors were mediating different effects. So, so this was something that your own research and your own, um, I guess, designed experiments uh, produced, this, this new result that indeed these drugs um, affect different receptors in, in the mind or in the brain. So what, what does that tell us? What, what's the significance of that? Well, it's led me to propose the existence of mental organs. Because when you look at the effects through drugs that are relatively, individual drugs that are relatively selective, so it, 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 it's fair to, for an individual drug to say, well, this drug's effect is mediated primarily through a certain receptor. Uh, and, and you can find different drugs that also highlight that receptor, and, and that sort of provides more data to reinforce the you know, implications about the nature of the effects of that receptor in the mind. Well, what individual receptors mediate are a very coherent uh, domain of mental experience. And different receptors mediate significantly different domains of mental experience and taken together they form the complete human mind. 
the heart, mind, spirit, and soul, all of these things emerge from this collection of different components. So the mind has structure. It's not just an amorphous New Age whole. It has structure. It, it has different components that, that play different roles. Uh, some of them have clear interactions among themselves. And collectively, they form the apparatus of the mind and, and the consciousness. Okay, so let me, let me see if I could summarize this a little bit here in that that the ex that the existing or the older paradigm essentially says that uh, all drug all all psychedelic drugs only go through one receptor and the differences in these drugs because that's part of this is that the different psychedelic drugs create different experiences and i think you call it depth or breadth of consciousness and a bunch of other things but but they don't all have the same effect on people and therefore under the existing paradigm the the mystery is well how how do different drugs have different effects on on the mind if they're all going through the same receptor is, is that one of the problems with the existing paradigm well in its strongest form the existing paradigm says that the differences in experiences either at, uh, by different individuals with the same drug or uh, with different drugs or the same individual with the same drug on different occasions that all the differences between experiences are due to set and setting so the setting is the circumstances under which you take the drug and the set is is the condition of your individual mind at that moment that that you take the drug and so the the hardest form of the current paradigm says that all of those differences in experience although mediate they're mediated through a common site of action that the common side of action, the metaphor is like uh, the gasoline metaphor. You put gasoline into the car and that allows the car to go, but it doesn't determine whether it's going to go north, south, east, or west. That's determined by the set and setting, the, you know, the driver and you know, where, where the car is and so on and so forth. So that, that's the metaphor of the current paradigm. Um, but it ignores the diversity of, of the drugs and there are, there are other situations in which they feel a need to explain that diversity because they they can see that in, in fact there are consistent patterns and it's not all due to set and setting so then they look for another level of analysis that uh, doesn't appear necessary to me because they're, they they're looking for a way of explaining these differences through action at one type of receptor and so they have to look for uh, another layer of analysis. The, the metabolic processes activated within the cell after the drug binds at the receptor, they look for variation in those metabolic processes that are activated inside the cell through action at a single receptor. They insist on ignoring the fact that these drugs are, are acting at dozens of other receptors. Right. Okay. Okay. So you, your model, it seems to me, provides a richer picture of the way drugs, these psychedelic drugs, interact with the mind. It does more than that, but, but before we go to the, to the bigger point, um, I think it's important for you to explain sort of the, the richness of your explanation because no longer are we just saying, well, the different um, effects of these drugs are based upon sort of the mood or, or where this person is or, or um, their... their mental outlook or whatever that indeed th the difference in the effects of these drugs can be explained by the drugs interacting with different receptors in the brain right right well the current paradigm I've seen efforts to integrate this idea through the single receptor into sort of an explanatory conceptual framework for how the mind works and, and I've never found these uh, explanations to be very compelling uh, on the other hand when I look through uh, look at the mind through the conceptual framework of what I either call the mental organs or the full flavor paradigm uh, things just make sense so many things fall into place it has tremendous explanatory and predictive power it reminds me of what Dobjansky said about evolution he said nothing in life makes sense except in the light of evolution well 
so much makes sense in the light of the mental organ paradigm that, relatively speaking, it, it seems as if relatively nothing makes sense in the absence of this paradigm. So it seems to be a paradigm, it, it seems to be the core paradigm for understanding the mind. It, 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 importantly, it, it, it provides a very easy explanation for the evolution of the mind because the mental organs are directly tied to the, to the genes, to neural structures, and to elements of the mind. And mental organs evolve by duplication and divergence. So if we have a paradigm of the mind that is based in evolution, evolution has to have been the creative process. So it, it's got to be a core organizing principle. And through a framework like that, things just have to make sense, and they do. Uh, and first of all, this is Philip Mirton. We're talking to Professor Thomas Ray of the University of Oklahoma about the organs of the mind. This is Conversations Beyond Science Religion. Stay tuned as we're going to be entering this field of under, trying to understand what science is learning about the spiritual experience as it investigates the architecture of the mind. Now, I, I think it might be helpful, uh, Tom, for you to sort of give a couple of examples of how, of, of how your hypothesis is associating different sort of emotional and mental and consciousness experiences with different organs of the mind? Because I think that's one thing uh, that I've read in your work that is unique. It maybe it would help to maybe draw the picture a little bit for the listener. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, consciousness, depth and breadth, and the sense of self. Uh, way back in the day, these, uh, this class of drugs were called consciousness-expanding drugs, and it seems to be true uh, in a couple of different senses. Uh, one definition of consciousness expansion is that it causes physiological activity of the brain that norm doesn't normally pass through the gates uh, to enter consciousness. And certainly, uh, these drugs cause consciousness expansion in that way. But they also cause a, a different form of consciousness expansion, which uh, I'll try to get to in a moment. But the, the broader set of psychedelic drugs expand consciousness in both forms. There are drugs that activate mental organs that in adulthood don't normally ever enter into consciousness. And they bring these mental organs into consciousness. And so in that sense, consciousness has expanded to include uh, a component of the mind that is normally uh, not conscious. So that's one form of expansion of consciousness. The other form, uh, and I call that breadth. The other form I call depth, and this one seems to be acting on consciousness itself, or at the very least, creativity. Uh, uh, there is a, a, a mental organ mediated by the serotonin 7 receptor that when you activate it, uh, the mind goes beyond just reality, just what's there. The mind adds a creative flourish. It, it, it seems to be the, the very spark of creativity, but it, in some ways it also seems to be consciousness itself. And they may be, it may be that creativity emerges out of consciousness itself. So the, the the other mental organs that uh, are normally that normally don't enter into consciousness, when they're brought into consciousness, what they provide is a deeper experience of actual reality. So you may see things uh, uh, around you uh, in a deeper way than you normally do. You 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 can see their intrinsic beauty, their uh, essential nature but you're just seeing actual reality and you're seeing it in a deeper way than you do in ordinary life. That's very different from uh, expansion of depth where you look at the things around you and they may transform into, into something beyond what they just are. Uh, a flower may transform into a goddess or somebody walking down the street who's, uh, uh, say, a lady in her 70s may uh, you may see her 
go backward in time, you may see her go from 70 to 60 to 50 to 40 to 30 to 20 to, to 10 to become a child. And then you may see her as an infant in her mother's arm with the umbilical cord still mm -hmm. attached. And then the whole thing plays out in reverse and she plays forward to her present state and then her eyes close for a moment and you see her death mask. Now that's a creative transformation of something that you saw in your visual field. And it's a, it's a creative act of your mind operating on uh, sensory input. <laughs> that you don't get from the mental organs associated with breath. That uniquely comes from the mental organ that produces consciousness itself. It has an extraordinary capacity for creativity. So the, the exciting part of this is that, and I, and I believe this is where where you're where you're heading is that by by associating uh, different parts of of the brain with different uh, consciousness or emotional experiences, you're starting to develop a a more full, richer picture of the mind and an, an understanding really how it works. And it, right, I mean that—that's part of it because because where this heads and and why I think we should be interested in this is because this leads to uh, better drugs for those with mental illness. Is 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 that one uh, purpose of what you're doing here? Absolutely, that's the application. Right. Um, just uh, let's take serotonin seven for example. Uh, it appears to me that serotonin 7 plays a critical role in schizophrenia. Uh, serotonin 7 is this creative mental organ associated with consciousness. As you gradually activate serotonin 7 to higher levels, things that enter consciousness become more tangible. Uh, things that you hold in your head may become so tangible that they, they, they are experienced as, as if perceived through the senses. So just three-dimensional space may become so tangible that it's tactile. You almost, as if you can feel three-dimensional space. So as this tangibility increases, you finally reach a critical threshold. This, this, this spectrum has a discontinuity in it. You reach a point where the creative contents of consciousness became, become more salient than actual reality. And at this point, you pass through a mental event horizon and you exit, mentally exit the current space and time and you enter a space and time created by the mind. It's a kind of an alternate reality. Uh, now, depending on the pharmacological situation, you may conjure a complete world. You may, your mind may create worlds and universes in this alternate reality. Now, interestingly, that creativity depends on not just the activation of serotonin 7, but activation of these breadth mental organs, these ones that are normally unconscious. If you just activate serotonin 7 and you cross this threshold, it's, it's empty. It, 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 it's, you've lost contact with the current reality, but you haven't replaced it with an alternate reality, in, in fact. Uh, but if you've also activated some of these breadth organs that are normally unconscious, then, and only then, do you actually create a full alternate reality, you know, richly rendered in visual detail, uh, populated by entities, aliens, elves, gnomes, things like that? It, it requires the, create, the, the engine of creativity, which seems to be serotonin 7, but that doesn't produce anything unless you also bring on board these other mental organs, which are from the affective domain. That's the, that is the domain of feeling. It, yeah, it it seems it seems as if uh, what what you're saying is that it's sort of a um, it's, it's almost like a computer program, where where depending on what programs are working at what at, at what time, th there's going to be different experiences um, shown, and it's not just a linear. Uh, uh, process. It's not just as if uh, you know uh, psilocybin affects uh, a certain receptor in the mind and it produces this effect. What you're saying is that different um, different parts of the mind, different organs, are sort of interacting uh, to create this 
this richness of experience. Is that is that is that what you're saying? That's right. Uh, Roland Griffiths at John Hopkins uh, published a very nice paper in 2006, uh, demonstrating in double-blind controlled clinical studies that psilocybin can produce a mystical type experience with deep personal meaning and significance. Now, the opening line to the paper attributed this through to its interaction through the serotonin 2A receptor. But my position is that psilocybin produces this experience because of its unique flavor, its unique receptor profile that has three key elements. One is that it, rather than activating serotonin 2, it actually inhibits serotonin 2, weakening the sense of self. Uh, in addition, it strongly activates dopamine 1 and moderately activates serotonin 7, this um, consciousness receptor. Dopamine 1 is the receptor that, that mediates meaning and significance. So it's, it's only through this unique combination of interactions with multiple receptors that you produce the distinctive flavor of psilocybin. And without that specific combination, you wouldn't get the effects reported by Griffiths. So how, so how, far, how far are we from, or how far is the medical community from sort of designing uh, better drugs uh, for mental illness, and, and I know that it's it's a tough question because I know that we're very, very early in this whole program. But but it seems to me, as I said earlier, that the that the advance that your research um, shows is that by better understanding the way the mind works, uh, medical science and and the and the and the pharmaceutical industry could could design drugs that better target the causes of mental illness. I mean, that, that's, how, how far are we from that? I mean, it, yes, um, I was trying to, to uh, comment on that and, and I wandered in another direction. Uh, the original hypothesis for schizophrenia was that it involved the dopamine 2 receptor and drugs were designed to be specific for do, uh, dopamine 2 and they didn't work. Uh, then a new generation of antipsychotics came out uh, called the atypical antipsychotics and in part because of the serotonin 2 paradigm of hallucinogenic drugs it was also supposed that well serotonin 2a produces hallucinations so that receptor must be involved in schizophrenia so they've come out with uh, drugs that interact with both serotonin 2 and dopamine and they're getting better results, but these drugs have the quality of shotguns. Right. Uh, pharmacology has sort of given up on the magic bullet because they weren't working, uh, and so they've turned to shotguns. But my interpretation is that if you're aiming at the wrong target, you'll never hit it with the magic bullet. You right. can only hit it with the shotgun, and lo and behold, these shotguns are also hitting serotonin-7. Huh. But they're producing a lot of adverse side effects because precisely because they are shotguns and they're hitting so many things in addition to what they need to hit to treat the disorder that they're producing a lot of unnecessary side effects and that if we actually knew what the right targets were we could go back to magic bullets or um, carefully designed uh, sets of receptor interactions because mental disorders aren't necessarily being caused through a problem with a single mental organ. In some cases, they appear to involve multiple mental organs. What, what if anything, have you learned or or this area of research uncovered about about something like Alzheimer's disease? Is this is is this related to? Does this does it does this have any impact about about? Uh, I'm sorry. Does this have any impact upon Alzheimer's? I don't think so. It, it looks like Alzheimer's is mediated through a uh, mechanism other than mental organs, so I don't see a connection there. Yeah, and I, I know that I wanted to ask you that question because uh, more and more we're seeing um, articles, reports, studies on, on really the, um, the rise in Alzheimer's disease, but, and, I'm, and I'm sure that that's a question a lot of people would have. Now, moving, moving to um, the next uh, topic. I, I like to. I like for you to address what your research says about the spiritual experience, because many people uh, 
whether it's from reading books like um, Charles Tart's uh, Altered States of Consciousness or a book by Aldous Huxley, who did a lot of research on, on drugs, or maybe it's Carlo Castaneda, um, they, th there is a sort of a, at least a folklore uh, wisdom about the relationship between uh, psychedelic drugs and the mystical experience. What what is your research uh, told you about how it's how they're related? Uh, I'd like to answer that in two ways. I want to talk about how the affective domain, which is mediated by a, a wide variety of mental organs, is something that we've that as adult humans we've lost touch with, so that we don't know how to interpret it. And when it comes into consciousness, it seems mystical. Uh, but before uh, detailing that, I, I want to give a kind of a, a mechanistic example of the interaction of uh, mental organs that can produce a, a, a powerful uh, mystical experience, the experience of ego loss, uh, which, which is also described as the oceanic experience. It's a, it's a feeling of unity with the universe. Uh, what it appears from me to, to me is that the serotonin 7 organ, the organ of consciousness, interacts intimately with the serotonin 2 organ, which isn't what the paradigm claims it to be, but it is, uh, I call it the gatekeeper to consciousness. So when serotonin 2 is activated, it closes the gates, so less enters consciousness. And when serotonin 2 is relaxed, the gates swing open and things enter the consciousness unfiltered. So serotonin 2 is a kind of a filter, a dynamic moment-to-moment -moment filter of mediating what things access, mental things access consciousness. Well, it looks like the sense of self, the egoic sense of self emerges from this process, from the act of filtering. This is where the sense of self emerges from. And if you activate serotonin 7 relative to serotonin 2, the ability of serotonin 2 to perform this filtering function uh, can be overwhelmed. So serotonin 2 can be overwhelmed by serotonin 7 and experience just floods through the gates of consciousness and the sense of self melts away, producing this, what, what's typically a, a, an ecstatic experience of unity with the universe. Right. So that's a, a, a sort of a detailed mechanistic example uh, of how the interaction of mental organs, uh, the, the mental state that emerges depends very much on the balance of, of the strength of those mental organs. And when that balance is shifted strongly, a dramatic change in the mental state can occur, in, including this one, which is typically uh, considered to be a mystical experience. Now, in addition to that, there are many mental organs that, um, you know, I, I, I referred to the expansion of depth. Well, this depth, all of the mental organs in that depth uh, domain are non-serotonin mental organs. And they appear to make up what I call the archaic mind. This is the mind of our evolutionary antecedents, the, uh, the animals, that, the, the primates that we evolved from, and our developmental antecedents, that is the children that we developed from, also seem to live in this archaic mind. Adult humans have a, a new layer added on, which is mediated by the serotonin receptors, the serotonin 7 and the serotonin 2, and their entwinement in, in managing uh, filtering consciousness and creating the sense of self, uh, uh, that all appears to be absent in our, in our ancestors, uh, both developmentally and e evolutionarily. What's more, by the time we're adults, the, the, the gates have been closed to the effective domain. Uh, and, and, and these other mental organs mediate feelings. What they lack is logic and reason. That seems to be the new the evolutionarily new component. But they are a way of knowing the world around us through feelings. It turns out that feelings are a language of description. They're a language older than words. And they, feelings are able to richly describe in subtle, complex detail the world around us. And we're able to, we're capable of closing our eyes and cr creating a, a detailed representation of the world out of feelings alone. 
an example of uh, somebody who's had their kappa receptor activated. They describe it was, I was, this is an adult, describes I was eight years old on a summer day uh, in a park on a swing set. And they describe this scene in elaborate detail. And they say, I didn't see this. I just felt it. We have the capacity. We have a very rich language of description through feelings, which we've forgotten about when we become adults. But when you bring this back, it seems mystical because it's, it's an ineffable language, which is a delicious oxymoron. I mean, a, a language that cannot be spoken. The, the, and I want to try to um, rephrase, I think, what you're saying. Well, at least uh, try to understand it. Are, are you saying that when, when younger, we tend to you use the word archaic we tend to th uh to experience uh more of the of the feeling or use more feelings to understand the world and as we get older through adults we start using the the rational intellect and and that it's in that the religion or the spiritual uh experiences are more associated with the feeling aspect essentially yes but more specifically, what I was trying to say is that if you bring into consciousness these in any part of that affective domain, right. in an adult human who has long since forgotten it and, and lost contact with it, once you bring that into consciousness for a moment, the adult will interpret it as a mystical experience. We, we've so forgotten it that we don't know how to make sense of it. Uh, it. It seems mystical to an adult because we've lost touch with that domain. You know, personally, I, I'm, I'm not a mystic. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. And, and I don't, you know, ha have a, a lot of place for supernatural explanation. And, and this is a part of our psyche that we've lost touch with that's a completely natural and normal part of our psyche that uh, pre-human animals saw the world this way. Children still see the world this way. But when adults see the world this way, it's a mystical experience. Well, that's, well I think it, raise, it raises the question about whether these mystical experiences are real or whether they're just a creation of, of the human mind. So well, I, I say they're totally real. Uh, I say that's the way apes see the world all the time. Right. That's the way children see the world all the time. There's nothing unreal about it. In fact, it's lacking that, uh, as I said, they, pro they provide us with a deeper experience of the world as it is. Yeah, yeah. The and, and I think I think you know when I when I ask that question, of course, it's it's not it's sort of an ambiguous kind of a question because because it's it's real in one way. It's the mystical experiences that you're describing are real in the sense that they're under your hypothesis. There is a physical counterpart to them in the human mind, right? So they're real in that sense. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, let, let me uh, comment on. Um, animistic religions like Shinto. Okay. So in Shinto, there are natural places that are considered to have an unusually sacred spirit about them, and they're objects of worship. They could be mountains, trees, unusual rocks, rivers, waterfalls, and other natural edifices. Well, there's a mental organ that provides this sensibility, the alpha-2 mental organ. And um, Ramachandran found a word in Sanskrit that exact, exactly captures what alpha-2 does. Uh, this is a quote. He says, this is the definition of rasa from ancient Sanskrit, capturing the very essence, the very spirit of something in order to evoke a specific mood or emotion in the viewer's brain. Well, we have a mental organ that does this. Right. It's telling us something about the essential nature of the things around us. And this is how children learn you know, about the world. Where, this is where common sense comes from. And it's not something that logic and reason can provide us. Logic and reason doesn't tell us anything about essential nature, but we have mental organs that, that have tremendous evolutionary depth. Tens of millions of years of evolutionary depth, depth have selected them to tell us about the nature of the world that we live in. 
And well, I th- see. Okay, now now let, let now let's get to really the 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 tough question, which is, which is. Let's 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 assume that there are uh, physical components or mental organs that correspond to what we know to be or understand to be these mystical experiences. The tough question is whether the mystery or the spirituality, whatever this, you know, the feeling of heaven or ecstasy or whatever the the um, you know the religious mystics talk about in their moments of reverie whether whether those experiences are something real in the sense that they're outside of consciousness it's something about the cosmos at large that they're understanding or grasping or whether this mental organ is imposing this experience upon the cosmos well first off i don't consider understanding something to make it go away. So if we understand something about the mind or mystical experience, that doesn't cause the mind or the mystical experience to cease to exist. Right. Now, the way you pose the question, it's kind of like um, inside-outside, where it, it, it does it, can a mystical experience tell us something about the cosmos? Well, I, w- I would call that understanding. And what, what is the function of the mental organs? Well, they are to understand the world that we live in. And, and evolution has spent tens of millions of years shaping these mental organs to provide us with that understanding. And so, of course, they provide us with an understanding. And I, I always found awe through understanding as a, as a student, as a scientist. I, I learned about the, the universe. I learned the hierarchical structure of the universe from the quarks through the atoms through the molecules through the macromolecules the the organelles the cells the tissues the organs the the bodies the populations the the ecosystems the the the, the biosphere the planet the the solar system uh, the the galaxy uh, the universe as a whole when i contemplate the the totality of the universe through all of these hi- hierarchical levels of rich structure it's awesome and that all comes out of my understanding with that without in, in ignorance I, I i wouldn't see the awesomeness of it yeah now the, and and the reason why i i asked that question was I, I i'm trying to um understand where where you would come down based upon your research with with folks like like richard dawkins uh and others who take the position that that God or this or uh, or spirituality is sort of a childish myth, sort of something that we grow out of. Um, what what's your stance on that perspective? Well, um, I agree that we grow out of it, but I don't agree that that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's kind of uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, there is a mental organ for that. Uh, The cannabinoid mental organ does on a long time scale what the serotonin 2 mental organ does in a dynamic moment-to-moment fashion. So as we mature from from children into adults, the the cannabinoid and serotonin 2 system interact to create permanent blocks on the gates to consciousness. This is why the archaic mind doesn't enter consciousness when we're adults, because it's been permanently blocked out. So yes, we grow out of it. Uh, as we become adults. Now, I, I, I personally don't find any value in the concept of God, but mysticism, I think, emerges from uh, a misunderstanding of what the other mental organs are doing for us. Uh, as I said, when they're activated, it's as adults, it's something that we've so lost, long lost contact with that we don't understand anymore. We completely understood it as children because that's the way we lived. But now when this comes back to us as adults, we don't know what to make out of, out of it. We don't have the language to describe it or to understand it. So we treat it as mystical. Yeah, the, okay, so, and this, this is, um, I think this, this, is, this is really interesting here because one way to interpret what you're saying, and, and, and let me know if this is off, is that according to what you understand at this point 
about the organs of the mind and understanding that, uh, Tom, this, this is part of your research. This is an hypothesis. It is supported by, by a lot of experiments. But this, this is, in, in my, my understanding, sort of a, a theory that you are developing, right? In, still, in the per- still at the level of hypothesis. It's, it's, okay. It hasn't been, uh, well, the overview has just been published. Uh, but the supporting evidence hasn't been published. It hasn't gone through the process of science, through the peer review, through right. the challenge, through the testing. Right. So it hasn't risen to the level of a theory. Right. It's still at the state of hypothesis. Right, right. But, uh, and, and, I, and I wanted to put that as a, as a, as a preface to what I'm going to say, which is that based upon the state of the hypothesis at this time, that the full uh, human experience as determined by the organs of the mind include include a mystical component that sort of gets hidden or uh, over time as we get older and and it's sort of and as you know as you say when when you when we're young we don't we don't treat these experiences mystical they're just part of experience it's it, it's 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 not like a strange uh experience it's part of it's part of being young and whatever other qualities we want to associate with being young and so so in in many ways i see what you're doing as validating uh spirituality but in a scientific rigorous way now is that accurate or or is that not accurate no that seems fine to me okay because i think that that i think that's really sort of the the power and the and the and the 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 exciting part of what you're doing and why I wanted to focus this show on what science um, is doing to understand the spiritual experience and 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 you know in this day and age it is it is so important I think for all of us to understand um, the limits of science and also understand how we're better under trying to come to 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 um, to, to grasp what spirituality is and that they're not necessarily uh distinct domains i mean you you by your by your study and research into the workings of the of the human mind you know i think it's i think it's remarkable that you've been able to sort of i don't know pinpoints the right word but sort of uh, draw a picture of how the mind creates what we view as mystical experiences, and that indeed these things are real. Uh, it, yeah, l- l- let right. me just add that the view of mysticism and spirituality that comes out of my work provides uh, a naturalistic explanation of them. It's, right. They're a natural part of, of the mind and of the living experience. It doesn't, understanding them through my view doesn't require a recourse to the supernatural. Right. Right, right, and and I think that that's that's the point that I I mean we could we could go on on this topic because I think part of 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 spirit of of the supernatural and it's 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 not exactly the most clear term, but but some people would say that supernatural would imply the existence of of beings, things, angels. Um, you know, gods in the sky that are outside of consciousness, and 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 so what you're doing is, is as far as I can understand, is that looking at the organs of the mind, we see a source for what other folks might interpret as the supernatural. Right. Right. So so now, and you know, the last thing I I wanted to um, have you address which is sort of a natural um, segue here, is what about folks, let's, let's just use the Buddha as an example, as sort of a metaphor here, uh, who have these mystical experiences without drugs. How, how, how would that happen? Well, uh, the way I interpret it is that there are paradigmatic individuals from many different traditions, religious traditions, or philosophical or secular traditions that became important teachers through an exceptional bloom of one or a few mental organs. So for the Buddha, as best as I've been able to interpret you know, reading descriptions of his experience, 
he had an experience of ego loss. He had the oceanic experience. He's, he had the experience of unity with the universe, which occurs when uh, you have an exceptional bloom of the serotonin 7 mental organ. So, in fact, he may have had that experience. Uh, other paradigmatic leaders like uh, Confucius seem to have a deep understanding of uh, human nature and humanity, which looks to me like an exceptional bloom of the beta mental organ. Uh, whoever were the founders of uh, the animistic religions, they seem to have a richly developed, fully bloomed alpha-2 mental organ. Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, his reputation for tenderness and compassion uh, suggests a richly bloomed, imidazzling mental organ. So we can see uh, where their unique insights came from by recognizing the mental organ that mediates the type of experience that they were articulating. Yeah, and so again, I think what's what's so interesting about this is that is that you you could put these historic uh, spiritual, mystical experiences into the language of science, and to me, it it helps. How can I put this? It helps raise the stature that uh, of these experiences and show that there is a physical basis for them. And I and I completely um, want to acknowledge, Tom, that that you're not that you are a scientist. You're not a mystic, and and that and that your your viewpoints are natural naturalistic as as you said but again again the exciting part of this is sort of is bringing the world of science this objective search for truth um, closer uh, to the world of spirituality the inner search for truth now now uh, in closing Tom if there's, if there's anything else you'd like to add about your your research or about if people want to learn more about what you're doing um, Go right ahead. Well, uh, I'd like to add something to what we just spoke about. These paradigmatic individuals who had their unique insight through uh, an exceptional bloom of a, a, a mental, a, a particular mental organ or two. Um, one of the things I see exciting about that is, is that having learned about uh, the diversity of mental organs, there's now uh, the possibility to look for something even greater than what these uh, very special individuals brought to us. We can take all of these mental organs together and talk about the, the, the full bloom of the full bouquet of human mental organs because this is our humanity. This, this is our evolutionary heritage. This is what makes us great. And so rather than uh, just following the tradition that you were born into, which may emphasize beta or may emphasize alpha-2 or may emphasize imidazoline, we, we now have the possibility of trying to, to learn about all of these mental organs and, and develop them all rather than just developing them narrowly uh, b based on the tradition that we happen to be born into. And that, that is, that's, a really, that's a really good point because, because there is, I mean, we're all trying to reach a state of being or a state of health to put it in more practical terms mental health physical health that that makes us happy i mean the the whole the whole uh, medical profession and and the world of health all are striving to put us into a, a position where we could have a better attitude and and what and if we could develop these these mental organs whether it's through meditation whether it's through exercise whether it's to through reading your work and and other books, it it leads it leads it to me to a more richer experience, and I think that's I think that's great stuff. So, uh, Tom, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's uh, for those who want to learn a little bit more about uh, Professor Ray. Uh, my my webpage is life.ou.edu. Right, and and there's a a number of of his articles that uh, on this topic. One. Uh, that I would recommend. It's called Mental Organs and, or and Orig Origins of the Mind. But I think this is a field that, that we're going to be seeing uh, grow in the future. And uh, we were lucky, lucky to talk to you, Tom, about, uh, about your research as you seem um, to be leading the field. So what does this all mean? Well, 
using the methods of science to explore spirituality is pretty exciting. There is something going on in the physical brain associated with spirituality. It is real, at least in the brain. But are we reflecting a man-made experience or a mind-made experience? Or is the mind reflecting a larger truth out there? And I don't think we can really answer this question until we answer the larger question of the origin of consciousness. Now, this is the big, hard question. But we're sort of between bookends. Science indeed progresses, but the mystery remains. And that is a good thing. The mystery is, when we look at the brain and the, and the neurons and the receptors, are we looking at a cause of the mystical experience or are we looking at an effect of consciousness this is philip Merton. this is conversations beyond science and religion thank you for listening you've been listening to conversations beyond science and religion with philip Merton. to find out more about philip and his new book the heaven at the end of science visit heaven at the end of science.com